It's Friday, February 12th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Democrats have wrapped up their case in Trump's second impeachment trial using new video of the Capitol riots and his own words against him. But it seems that the former president is still on his way toward acquittal. A majority of GOP senators have already voted saying that this trial is unconstitutional and will stick to that in their final votes. Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor at Politico, joins us for how it played out so far. Next, there's only one airline left where you can book a flight with no one in the middle seat, at least until the end of April, and that's on Delta. Despite a pandemic, most people just want the cheapest fare possible, and Delta has even lost money with this plan but they feel like they are building up some goodwill when business travelers come back. Scott McCartney, middle seat columnist at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Finally, an Israeli company named Aleph Arms has unveiled the first 3D printed ribeye steak. This is not plant-based and instead uses a culture of live animal tissue to grow the steak. It is a proof of concept for the company, which hopes to bring these lab-grown steaks to market in the second half of 2022. Laura Riley, business of food reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for what to know about this new meat-making process. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. They not only presented a persuasive case to the Republican senators, but also to the American people. They put us on record for all of history about what Donald Trump did to subvert the Constitution of the United States of America. Joining us now is Anita Kumar. White House correspondent and associate editor at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Anita. Sure. Thanks for having me back. I wanted to check in on the second impeachment trial of President Trump. We've seen a lot of compelling evidence from the Democrats kind of laying out what happened the day at the Capitol on January 6th and how the riots really played out. They were using President Trump's own words and tweets, connecting a lot of the dots. But despite all of that, It still seems that the president is on the path to acquittal. Uh, You know, a lot of this started with Senator Rand Paul and that vote that they took before all of this started, where basically almost all the Republicans said this is not constitutional. This whole trial is not constitutional. And despite some of this evidence, they're holding that line of it. So, Anita, tell us what we've been seeing so far in the impeachment trial. We haven't gotten any indication that any Republicans have changed their mind. It's possible But my colleagues that are there covering the trial and other reporters get to talk to some of the senators in between in the breaks, and they've interviewed some of them, and it just doesn't sound like any of them have changed. So President Trump and his team still feel that they would lose a few, maybe a handful of Republicans, but definitely not the 17 that's needed to convict him. The House impeachment managers are wrapping up their case today on Thursday. On Wednesday, they sort of talked a lot about these They released new videos showing how close lawmakers were to danger. But on Thursday, they took a different route. They sort of they're expanding on that. They're really talking about how President Trump has a history of promoting and glorifying violence, or they're trying to show that anyway. And they've been playing video clips of President Trump at his campaign rallies back to 2015. They're also talking about how it doesn't seem like he has any remorse or had any remorse for what happened on January 6th. And they're saying they're trying to prevent him from even running for office again because they don't know what that would be like. If he lost, could we face the same thing that we faced on January 6th? But I think the most compelling thing from Thursday was really showing 
that some of the people that went to the Capitol on January 6th really were listening to what President Trump said. They took their orders, basically is what they're saying, according to these people that they were interviewed or, or made statements that they said, well, look, President Trump said to do this, so I'm doing it. The defense team is going to be coming up next, and I think they're allotted 16 hours for the defense. They're saying they're going to wrap it up in one day and not even use all the time. Yeah, that's right. They're going to wrap it up on Friday. And what senators are saying is they expect a possible vote on Saturday. So this is a little bit of a change because they thought they might not even be there on Saturday. But things have changed. So the defense will be pretty quick. And then if they have the final vote on Saturday, that's it. They've wrapped up in less than a week, which is surprising because at the beginning of this week, they thought they'd go into early to mid next week. So yeah, I mean, it's pretty quick. I mean, one of the reasons it's quick is because we haven't seen witnesses. What we're seeing is House impeachment managers talking and showing videos. And similarly, on Friday, when President Trump's team defends him and presents their evidence, we're probably going to not see witnesses again. We're going to see some videos and they're going to be talking and making some arguments. But the witnesses are sort of would slow it down. You know, what President Trump is expected to argue is that a lot of politicians, Democrats and Republicans alike, make these fiery, passionate speeches, but that doesn't mean they're directing people to go commit violence and trespass and hurt people. And so what they're going to show is videos of, likely to show videos of Democrats saying different things. You can already see President Trump's team and former aides and current aides tweeting about some of those things. You know, they're pulling up old things that Democrats have said in the past and just said, oh, look at this. This is the same kind of thing. The president obviously was not expected to show up at the trial, but they did say something about a letter, possibly. Have we seen or heard anything about that? We haven't. And of course, if if something comes forward, that would be something likely that his team would unveil tomorrow. We, we still don't know exactly what this is going to look like. You know, I mentioned that there's not really any witnesses. There's still the possibility that they could say, look, we'd really like to call someone and they could have a specific vote on that. So we don't know exactly what's going to happen. This is what they were talking about. This is a very unusual trial in that the rules were kind of done at the last minute. We still don't know exactly what things look like, unlike his first impeachment trial, where it felt like for a long time they were planning it. It was, you know, much longer President Trump had a much bigger team and bigger defense than he does now outside. Obviously, he had the White House at that time, so people were defending him all over the place, and he had a big legal team. It's just a very different situation. So that's possible. They could read something or talk about something that President Trump is saying. Obviously, we do not expect him to be in Washington at all for this. Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor at Politico, thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, while customer satisfaction uh, on Delta has always been strong, we've seen over the last year it's even stronger. And we know the middle seat is one of the things that people really value when they make the decision in the face of a pandemic to uh, to travel on Delta. Joining us now is Scott McCartney, middle seat columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Good to be with you. I wanted to talk about the last airline who is still blocking the middle seats on flights. Delta announced that they're going to be extending their middle seat blockage for at least one more month to the end of April. Now, a lot of the airlines were doing this throughout the pandemic. Most of them ended just at the tail end of last year. But Delta is kind of betting that they'll 
build up some goodwill and at least consumer confidence in them. But they're losing a lot of money. They're being beat out by cheaper flights. That still is king. Everybody wants that cheapest flight that they can get. So, Scott, tell us a little bit more about it. That's right. Delta's extended through the end of April. They're paying a huge financial penalty for this. It's very clear. Um, before the pandemic and in the last half of 2019, Delta was the most profitable airline in the U.S. And then in the last half of 2020, it flipped to the airline with the biggest losses. Delta is getting a revenue premium. So the people who are flying Delta are paying more. And presumably that's because not having somebody in the middle seat is attractive to them. But there just aren't enough of them. The Delta's overall revenue is much weaker than other airlines. And you can see it, Delta's been filling about 40% of its seats. Americans filling more than 60% of its seats. So Americans carrying a lot more people on each flight. And even though people are paying a little bit more to Delta, it doesn't nearly make up for it. We've all seen the pictures of really packed flights, everybody with their masks on, sitting really close to each other. Everybody kind of sees that and they say, wow, that's scary. Maybe we shouldn't be flying. But, you know, that's not really how it played out in practicality. Delta lost a lot of business to other airlines with really cheap fares like Spirit, packing people in there. You know, the lesson of this is that people do want cheap fares. And that's really always been the lesson of the airline industry. Um, when airlines have tried on a large scale basis to offer more room, more comfort, you know, years back, American did more room throughout coach. And people just weren't willing to pay enough people weren't willing to pay extra for it. I looked at some particular markets, and it, it was fascinating. Um, Atlanta, Chicago is a good market to look at. It's uh, Delta's the biggest airline in that market, obviously, because of its giant Atlanta hub. But United's in there, American's in there. So you have a lot of competition on that, that route. And when you look at it for the third quarter, prime time in the pandemic, Delta lost market share. Its fares held up pretty well in that market compared to the other guys, but Spirit slashed its fares, and Spirit was 9% of the market going in, and Spirit's average fare one way was $34, and, you know, it's just sort of ridiculous, $68 round-trip tickets between Atlanta and Chicago. Spirit was up to 21% of the market, and so it was pretty clear evidence that given the choice, empty middle seat or cheap fare, more people were opting for cheap fare. So, I mean, it doesn't really seem like it's working out for them. Delta, for its part, says they're selling peace of mind to those people that kind of want to be a little more spaced out. What's their big bet that, that it's just going to come back once vaccines are in place and more people are traveling and, and all that? I think the way to look at it is that Delta is not worried about winning the pandemic. Delta is playing the long game here and really marketing to people who aren't traveling. And what they're saying is, we will take care of you better than other airlines. And they think that when business travel does start to come back, when people who have been afraid to fly for the past year now, when they start coming back, that they will opt for Delta over other guys. So, you know, the pandemic is costing them a huge amount of money. But essentially, they hope to get it back, in a sense, when things get better by doing better than their competitors in the recovery. We've talked a little bit about this before, you know, just kind of the science of 
flying and, and virus transmission, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, it's really safe because the planes have these really good ventilation systems. But there are studies that suggest that, you know, proximity matters. We've talked about this, you know, the people right in front of you, the people right in back of you. It's kind of on both sides, whether more bodies in the plane could make you more susceptible to getting the virus. There is a common sense logic to this. I think there's no doubt that more bodies in the airplane increase your chances of contracting the the virus. On the other hand, the risk is very small to begin with. And it's small to begin with because of um, ventilation on airplanes. It's small to begin with because there are fairly rigid mask rules now, and that does make a difference. So what you're talking about is increased risk off a very small risk to begin with. And so airlines argue that's not significant. Other people have argued, well, it may be significant, but there is acknowledgement that it's still a small risk, even with somebody in the middle seat. That said, I think being shoulder to shoulder with a stranger these days, you know, sort of flies in the face of of common sense when we're told to socially distance and stay six feet apart. And, And so that's sort of what Delta is thinking They say they're not doing this for safety. They're doing it because it's what customers, what they think customers want. Scott McCartney, middle seat columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Always good to be with you. It is the shape of a ribeye steak, and it has that edge marbling and the kind of interstitial marbling that you associate with that cut. It doesn't have a bone, but it does have the kind of, I mean, I haven't eaten it, but looking at a variety of pictures, it has that kind of the striations of tissue with all that kind of lovely marbling inside. Joining us now is Laura Riley, business of food reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Laura. Oh, happy to be here. An Israeli company has unveiled the first 3D-printed ribeye steak. They use a culture of live animal tissue. You know, they call it a bunch of different things, lab-grown meat, cultured meat. And uh, there's a lot of high hopes for this. I want to start off by asking you to describe what it looks like. I've seen a few pictures of it. Let's talk about how it presents, and then we'll get into all of the other stuff behind it. So ribeye is one of my favorite cuts, so I might be a little bit biased here. (laughs) It looks a little scruffy, I guess I'd say, but it is the shape of a ribeye steak, and it has that edge marbling and the kind of interstitial marbling that you associate with that cut. It doesn't have a bone, but it does have the kind of, I mean, I haven't eaten it, but looking at a variety of pictures, it has that kind of the striations of tissue with all that kind of lovely marbling inside, uh, and it looks juicy. So as the first effort out of the gate of this sort, it's pretty impressive. Okay, now let's talk a little bit more uh, where this is coming from and the technology behind this. This is Aleph Farms, and this is their 3D bioprinting technology. How does it work? A lot of this is intellectual property, and they used a lot of words that are not in my vocabulary, like (laughs) immortalized cells. But what they do is they basically, they build a plant-based scaffolding, and then they take animal tissue. So they basically take something like a punch biopsy from a living animal, and they transfer that into this medium. And basically, this kind of scaffolding helps the tissue grow with something like a vascular system from an actual animal so that nutrients are passed through the tissue and it grows and grows. So it grows into a thick, steak-like kind of 
structure. Right. I mean, a lot of the cultivated meat that has been unveiled so far, none of it's in the marketplace yet. This is all just kind of uh, prototypes developed. Most of it has been kind of unstructured meat. So what you'd call like ground meat or the inside of like a nugget, that kind of thing, because it's much more difficult to get something that has that kind of verisimilitude that looks like the real deal and has the right fat and the right color and the right kind of texture once cooked. So this represents a real quantum leap forward for this kind of new technology. One of the biggest hurdles for all of this, they have proof of concept now, all that, but regulatory framework for this to be released to the public, that's going to be one of the biggest hurdles to overcome. The interesting thing is it's going to be shared jointly by the FDA and the USDA. And I don't know if this is a case of like kicking the can. No, you deal with this thorny issue. No, you deal with it. <laughs> but these two agencies together, so the FDA will deal with the front end and the USDA will deal with the labeling and kind of exactly how it needs to be represented in the marketplace. And, and together, there's a lot of pressure put on them right now to advance this fairly swiftly. I think that last March, they kind of decided how they were going to split up the task. Then they kind of opened it up for questions and it should somehow get resolve itself this year. What have people from Aleph Farms said about this? I know one of their things, they said, you know, time to acceptance is very important for them. You know, obviously this is brand new to a lot of people, but in the long run for people, the public to accept this is, is something that they're really looking forward to. Well, I actually think the pandemic has done them a great favor. I think that the pandemic has supercharged the phenomenon of the alt protein. So plant-based burgers, which were, if, I mean, if we can think back to like last February, they were kind of a novelty item then. And just in the past year, there's been a huge embrace of alt protein products across the board. Some of it is fear-based. Some of it is because we had that supply chain kind of constriction in March and April and into May. And people were a little bit squeamish about their meat supply and worried about COVID outbreaks in meat processing facilities. And so I think people were quicker to embrace plant-based versions of, of these foods. And the cultivated cruelty-free, you know, animal cell-based versions of this probably are going to benefit from our quick acceptance of yeah. the plant-based. Aleph Farms is the company that has this ribeye steak right now. They also had like a thin cut steak that they had in 2018. But there's other companies working on this, people that are doing cultured seafood, other meat alternatives. Tell me a little bit about that. So some of the original ones, for some reason, the, the two kind of real epicenters of activity in this space are in Israel and the Netherlands. And so Mosa Meat and Meatable are two companies, Dutch companies, that are fairly close to bringing something to market. Another Israeli company, Future Meat, is also fairly close. So we are we're looking at kind of the regulatory framework to be set up and then for there to be some indication about whether they're going to be accepted in the marketplace. And a lot of people I've talked to have said they're going to start with restaurants, that restaurants are the key. So if you can get a major restaurant, either high end or a chain or whatever, to embrace this kind of technology and put it forward so that people are willing to give it a go for the first time and say, oh, that's pretty good or, you know, mm, that's <laughs> right. not for me, whatever, to kind of take that step that that is going to encourage kind of more widespread acceptance and, and kind of at the grocery store level. Laura Riley, business of food reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me today. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment. Give us a rating. 
and tell us stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dives is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.